Uh, Matthew 5, which uh, Mike uh, just read to us, uh, is one of the big moments in Matthew's Gospels. Uh, Gospel. All of the uh, preliminaries have taken place. Jesus gets born. Some wise men stop in with some gifts. John the Baptist makes a really significant cameo appearance and is baptizing people, including Jesus, just as we uh, have done uh, tonight. Jesus goes to the desert for 40 days and then emerges and starts to assemble a crack team of disciples. And then we come to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe one of the most celebrated moments of uh, spiritual teaching in the history of humanity. Even Monty Python had a go at covering the Sermon on the Mount. That's how deep uh, it goes in our culture. And Matthew is determined that we grasp the significance of, of this in the way that he introduces this collection of Jesus' teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, the, the blessed are statements of Jesus. First, Matthew sets the scene. A large crowd has gathered. That's a good start. It's a big crowd. This is not an insider moment. This is an everyone moment. So only a mountain will do for this launch. And Matthew wants us to see a reflection of Moses on Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given. This is going to be just like that, except a little bit better. And so the, the sound and the light show of Moses at Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus uh, 19 is in view. Let's get ready to rumble, if you're a Joseph Parker fan. I have to confess that when I wrote this, I wrote it as if Joseph Parker had lost. Who knew? Shouldn't be so negative. And then there's almost a pause. Some dramatic tension. Almost as long as the pause, as you sometimes see when announcing who's going home on American Idol. But if you're a Jew from this period, you know that when the rabbi sits down, he means business. And then he opens his mouth. You know, Matthew is really dragging this out. He could have just said, and Matthew said. Uh, but no, he says, and then he opens his mouth. Uh, He's dragging it out, but he has in mind what Jesus, uh, what he's just recorded in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, when Satan uh, tempted Jesus with the promise of celebrity. And Jesus' response was, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus opens his mouth. And the anticipation, if, if it couldn't be built any further, builds even higher. And then he taught them. Finally, we've got to it. If you were there for this moment, if you were there, it's one of the main reasons you came to, came to hear uh, Jesus teach. What would he say? What might you be hoping for? What might you be expecting? Maybe he's going to usher in a future of prosperity and wealth for the nation of Israel. Maybe he'll promise a season of happiness for the people. 
Or maybe now is, now is the time to declare an, an insurrection against the Roman oppressors, to bring back the glory days of King David, to make Israel great again. Except he doesn't. It's not about prosperity or wealth. It's not about happiness. It's not about victory. It's a letdown. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the sad. Blessed are the lame. Blessed are the unblessed. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, as we gather around uh, this account, this, this astonishing account of Jesus' teaching, uh, we pray that you might open our ears, our eyes, our minds and hearts, uh, that we might hear uh, directly and personally from you. God, we ask that you would speak through uh, your scripture, that you, Holy Spirit, that you would speak uh, deep into our hearts. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what's it all about? What's the letdown all about? What's the end game? In a, in a means over ends world, is, the, is there an end in sight here? If this is the key moment that Matthew wants us to pay attention to, what is Jesus announcing? What is the big reveal? Well, the clue for us is in verse 3. The clue in verse 3 is the end game. Because it's not wealth, it's not happiness, it's not victory, it's something else. It's the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we think about a kingdom, we almost always think of a place, right? The United Kingdom, or the kingdom of Tonga, or maybe the Magic Kingdom. We always think of a place, and it's likely that for the Israelites, that's exactly where their heads went as well, to the kingdom of Israel, to the glory of the past and the hope of being restored in the future. But the particular word that Matthew uses in the, in the Greek manuscript and the word that Jesus uh, uh, probably used in the Aramaic does not only mean a place. The word captures more than just the place. It captures the activity or the conditions of the kingdom. See, Jesus is not talking about a place at all. And he's certainly not talking about a place called heaven. He's talking about human life. Lives that you are, like you and I are leading. Coming back into line with how God always wanted it to be. He's talking about life lived as if God really was the king uh, of our lives. Life, we're to use the, the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, where your kingdom comes, where your will be done on earth as in heaven. Not just one place, but every place. Now, now yardstick for how we measure this, our, the end game that God has in sight, if you like, is the kind of oneness that we only get to experience with God in heaven. This is what the whole game of life is heading towards, oneness. 
oneness with our Creator. Not, not, not heaven alone, but oneness with our Creator here and now. A kingdom on earth that reflects the will of God, which is how the term is used in the other Gospels, the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of heaven. Now, it goes without saying, I think, that this is a pretty, pretty big call. And it, frankly, it may take some time. Uh, yet there is the possibility that this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom that is coming, might break out at any time in and through the lives of those who find themselves living as citizens of the kingdom. Even young people being baptized uh, tonight. And the Beatitudes, these blessed are statements, describe what this citizenship can look like now and in the future when Jesus returns. Now, I think this is a little bit sobering because it changes the end game. The end game is not wealth. It's not even being comfortable, whatever that is. The end game is not happiness. Well, it's not a bad thing. Certainly not happiness at all costs. The end game is not winning. The end game is not about power or domination. The end game is living life in such a way that you and I are living out of the fullness of our humanity. Living not so much with the end in sight, but with the ends in sight. And one of our, our habits when we gather like this is not to just listen to me ad nauseum, although you're very welcome to, uh, but to just take a moment and pause. And I want to do that uh, tonight as well. What's your end game? Take a moment to capture what is the end game for you? So if the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is the ends, what are the means? Well, well, to orient ourselves to these sayings uh, as they're intended to be read, they're not contracts. They're not intended to be read like that. If you do this, God will do that. That's not how God works. God's promises are are not dependent in any way on our ability to live up to them. It's not how God works. It's frankly not how we work. In fact, they're not really a means to an end at all. See, Matthew's Beatitudes are not practical or ethical advice uh, for successful living, but these are radical, maybe even prophetic declarations uh, made about how life really is. They're not statements about kind of general human virtues. Actually, most of them really appear to be the opposite of, of common wisdom. And this is really true of these first three that we're dealing with tonight. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In other words, blessed are the unblessed. I mean, this category of people that are described in these three, in these three sentences don't really seem to me to be hashtag blessed. Seems quite different to me. But when we, when we dig a little deeper, and we do so with the ends in sight, we discover the truth that, that lies behind the disappointment, if you like, that we're not being promised wealth or happiness or power. 
Let's take the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Another, another translation puts it this way. I think it's going to come up on the screen. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit because they had it coming, didn't work hard enough, and have a welfare approach to grace. That's uh, uh, from the RWB version, uh, the right-wing Bible. <laughs> actually, I, just, I actually just made it up. But, but it's true. That's 100% true. 100%. See, our spiritual poverty is down to us. We've each made choices that have, that have taken us out of citizenship in God's kingdom. And we can't work hard enough to put it right. It's actually beyond us to solve that problem. And yes, we need grace. We desperately need the grace that, that we haven't earned. In a sense, we get exactly what we don't deserve. And we get a second chance. This spiritual poverty, this spiritual helplessness, if you like, is the pathway to life in God's kingdom, is the pathway to life in the kingdom of heaven. And instead of just asking ourselves, because this is one of the things we sometimes do with these kinds of passages, I wonder who Jesus is talking about when he talks about the poor in spirit. Instead of asking ourselves that, we might begin to identify as people who are spiritually poor, who don't have it within us to solve the deepest challenge of our life, and that is our spiritual life. I think it's, I think it's a big step for us to, to recognize that, that in this one area of life, we really can't help ourselves in a way that makes enough of a difference. And the truth of it, certainly for my life, the truth is, is that, that spiritual poverty leaks into every part of life. Why else do we prefer the promise of wealth or happiness or power? Because we are lacking what we truly need. And the oneness that comes uh, from recognizing that uh, with God that comes from recognizing that we are powerless to change our situation changes everything. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But what about the second one? Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning sucks, frankly. I'm sure anyone who's done that, which is most of us, it's really not a place that one likes. Sadness Sadness is like totally out of fashion in our culture. This really is blessed are the unblessed. I don't know whether Jesus had been reading some good psychology texts and, and was encouraging the practice of good grieving and mourning for mental health and well-being. He likely did think that way. But I think here he has a different end in mind. In Isaiah 61 uh, and this is quoted subsequently by Jesus in Luke 4. In Isaiah 61, uh, the prophet Isaiah, many hundreds of years before, said this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. 
to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a, a garland of flowers and, instead of uh, ashes, instead of wearing ashes as part of the mourning ritual, the, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. Hundreds of years before. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he owns this uh, ancient text as a, as a way, it's, it's, like a, it's like his brand statement. It's how he positions himself in his ministry. And part of that positioning was that the Messiah would bring comfort to all who mourn. And now the subtext here is, just as we're all spiritually poor, we are all mourners in some way or other. Matthew 5.3 is not saying, go out and find a better mourning game, you know, like get better at mourning so that you can, you know, get more comfort. That's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, recognize the God of comfort who recognizes your pain and loss. Happiness might not be the end game that we hope it is. But none of us ever need be alone in the world, whatever and whenever we might experience the tragedies of life. The final one is, uh, I think, is a bit tougher. Blessed are the meek. So we don't use that word meek that often, do we? So I think it's hard for us to grab on to the, the meaning as easily as some previous generations who had had it a little bit more in their language. But think gentleness, gentleness and humility. Not weak or passive, but think strength under control. See, people who live out of gentleness and humility and the humility of Jesus are, are not above overturning a few tables when injustice calls for it. But they are also some people, I think, who have learned uh, some important truths. They reject the idea that might is right. See, many Jews in this era uh, were expecting a violent uh, confrontation uh, with the Roman colonizers. Some even uh, tried it. But Jesus promises the kingdom. He promises the earth to those who do not try to force God's hand, to those who wait patiently and humbly, people of of peace. And you see, for the first hearers of of Matthew's gospel, the, the point is not lost on them because they have known the brutal repression of Israel's hopes in 67 to 73 AD uh, when the Romans just crushed Jewish resistance, destroyed their temple. See, they understand that the Lord does not help those who help themselves. God favors the humble rather than people who trust only in their own strength and ability. It is this meekness that God favors, this gentleness and humility, this Strength under control, asserted in the direction of others. And it's in stark contrast, I think, to what was promised to Jesus just a chapter ago in that same part of of Matthew 4, from another mountain. This is what it says. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give to you. 
if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. See, inheriting the earth is not about power and control and dominion. It's about gentleness and humility, strength under control. See, far from being a case of blessed are the unblessed, it's more a case of reframing what true blessing really is. And you and I have the opportunity to be more fully human as we acknowledge our deep spiritual poverty, as we embrace the need that we have for comfort in our moments of tragedy and despair as we reject the control of others and instead take on strength under control, gentleness and humility, a life lived in pursuit of the king's agenda rather than our own. So I wonder what the hashtag blessed life might mean for us. It's kind of not well known because hashtags have been so abused in, in recent times. But hashtags are basically labels. They're ways of labeling content. They're a shorthand that allows you to jump to similar uh, content. And in the same way, the Beatitudes are labels for this very authentic following of Jesus, a following of Jesus that's lived with the hope, with the anticipation even uh, of the kingdom which has come through Jesus and which is still coming as we work it out together. But this is not the way hashtag blessed is used in our culture, right? It's not how the hashtag is, is used. It's typically used as, as shorthand for some kind of sometimes divine favor. Hashtag blessed. Aren't I lucky that all my friends are so beautiful like me? Hashtag blessed. That's a, that's a real one. I do research. It's the, it's the kind of favor that comes from an outside agency, a, a kind of a heavenly sugar daddy, instead of the kind of favor that comes through character that is produced in our lives. See, there's a tension, I think, between how the, the hashtag attempts to describe a life that is experiencing some kind of blessing and this blessed life as is described in the Beatitudes. But the hashtag, the hashtag of the Beatitudes uh, calls us into the, the possibility that we might become a signpost, that we might become a label uh, to others, that there is a different end game, a different pathway towards full humanity. One writer sees hashtags as a kind of body language. This is what he says. Hashtags at their best stand in as, uh, uh, sorry, hashtags at their best stand in as what linguists call paralanguage, like shoulder shrugs and intonations. But at their most annoying, the colloquial hashtag has burst out of its use as a sorting tool and become a linguistic tumor. A tick more irritating than any, than any banal link <laughs> uh, or lazy image meme. Whew, you know who you are. One line of information with 5,000 lines of hashtags. 
See, the hashtag life will either be revealed as this expressive body language that, that reveals a life that can be different, that points to the possibility of heaven on earth, or it will be dismissed as an, frankly, irritating posture that is best avoided. And tonight I want to invite each one of you into the hashtag blessed life. Jesus was not speaking in-house that day on the mountain. He was looking to the possibility that you and I might lead lives that are less cluttered, that are much simpler, less cluttered with our pursuit of wealth, less cluttered with our pursuit of happiness at all costs, less cluttered with our pursuit of control and power. Lives that are not caught up in these dreams and in, in these end games. But that you and I might be people who are focused on humility and gentleness, that we live with a calm and a contentment about what God has given us. That we might become followers of this Jesus who painted this picture of what a fully realized human life might be like. That we might become his followers and citizens in his kingdom. That we might truly be hashtag blessed.